Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Infection Control Matters. It's Martin Kiernan here, and I'm with uh, Brett Mitchell. And today we're going to be talking about something I've been standing on a soapbox about for a few years now because I kept seeing PHE national prevalence studies coming out showing that healthcare-associated pneumonia is the biggest uh, healthcare-associated infections in, in numbers-wise. I can remember going to an ECDC conference and then publishing their data and also showing that HAP was the biggest group of healthcare-associated infections. I remember asking them on the podium, what you're going to be doing about it then, and blank looks. Uh, so I've you know, been involved in a couple of reviews on this, and Brett has as well, so I'm being quite passionate about this subject, really, even though I'm not working in clinical practice any- anymore. And you feel pretty much the same, don't you, Brett? Yeah, absolutely, Martin. And just waiting for that grant to get approved one day to uh, to try and help move this topic along a bit more. And so today we've also got um, a, a wonderful guest speaker, Dr. Vicky Owen. Uh, Vicky is a consultant academic geriatrician at South Tees Hospital in the UK. And Vicky is an NHS consultant who's been working on things like wearable technology to detect dysphagia, oral care interventions to prevent hospital-acquired pneumonia. And she's uh, certainly been working in the older person space um, as well in, in this area of HAPS. So fantastic to have you join us, Vicky, for this uh, chat today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. It's really nice to be able to talk to other people that are really passionate about hospital-acquired pneumonia. I think we're quite a sort of lone group, really, aren't we? There are not that many um, people that are interested in in sort of doing intervention studies in this area, as you were saying, Martin. But, uh, I find it very frustrating, I've got to be honest. Now, what's the point of doing surveillance if you're not going to do any action? You know, I mean, it, the, the, I remember the first prevalence study came out and Public Health England said there will be all these actions but there was actually nobody to do the actions and until we can get some interest going. And, uh, you know, and I've been involved in a small way in a, in a piece of work that's just been published. And, you know, even if we're getting small studies, it can give us an indication of where we can go in the future. Uh, but I'm finding it quite frustrating, I have to say. Speaking as somebody who is virtually an older person, <laughs> I'd really quite like to get this one sorted before it happens to me. <laughs> well... You're definitely not an older person yet. Sixty-five. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, you know, we we I think we're all on the same page with that one, and uh, I guess you know it's something that we've been talking about for some time. And part of the reason we thought, well, why don't we talk about it this week in our podcast was an article, well, a letter to the editor that that came up um, on my feed. Um, I think it was last week in the Journal of infection it was called mouth care matters uh hap prevention study study slurring my words tonight and it's uh <laughs> i haven't had any drinks either um so um but mark garvey led this paper and i think you and martin you were involved as well a little bit but it just um in reading the letter to the editor again it just reinforced and i'm not knocking the paper when i say this but just reinforced that this topic hasn't gone away and we still haven't nailed it and um and so uh, today, I think we're going to try and talk about this uh, this a little bit more. And I guess probably to start with, Vicky, um, mm. what do we mean by HAP? And mm-hmm. I guess what are the common causes of HAP? So what we mean when we're talking about HAP, so hospital-acquired pneumonia, uh, is a pneumonia which is contracted after 48 hours of being in hospital, so not a community-acquired pneumonia, which is what someone comes in with. So an, an easy way to think about it is it a secondary pneumonia. So it's secondary to another illness that the patient has presented with. 
And it's particularly problematic. We've known about it for you know over 100 years. Um, the mortality rates are far higher um, in people with hospital-acquired pneumonia, probably because they already had another illness to start with. They're all, already a bit weaker. Um, and even sort of Osler, hundreds of years ago, or 100 years ago, when he was doing all of his autopsies on all the patients that died, noted that it was really, really prevalent um, in, in patients that died. And he said that, you know, it's, it's the secondary infections that carry people off, not the first thing that they came in with. And so um, it's there are a number of causes, but the, um, the sort of big hitters in terms of um, the causes of hospital acquired pneumonia are around uh, dysphagia, so difficulty swallowing, and also um, the sorts of bugs that you find in the mouse in these patients. So things like E. coli, Staph aureus, other gram-negative uh, rods or Enterobacteriaceae that are not seen in healthy, you know, happy younger mouths. Um, you do see it in, in kids who are sick as well, but it tends to be uh, either poorly kids or sort of at the other end of the spectrum. Um, older people who tend to have maybe things like dementia or delirium, um, neuro stroke, other neurological conditions. Um, and it's that kind of interface between the bugs that you get in the mouth, so those ones that can cause hospital-acquired infections, and that difficulty clearing the mouth, so reduced oral clearance or inactivity in the mouth, and, and, and sort of tied with that difficulty with swallowing or dysphagia. Then those two things together particularly in a vulnerable host, you know, one who has um, perhaps reduced immune function or has been in hospital, that then you start to, those sort of triad of things um, are a real breeding ground for hospital-acquired pneumonia. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in that paper you published a few years ago now. I think it was orthopaedic patients, wasn't it, where you found yeah. if there were specific organisms in the mouth, then there was a much higher chance of having a healthcare-associated pneumonia with associated mortality. And could you talk about that one a little bit more? Yeah, so that was actually, so that was my PhD. Um, and we, because um, I'd, 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 done, I'd done a little bit of time as a microbiology trainee, and it was there that I sort of saw this kind of group of patients across the hospital, not just in one specialty that were having this, you know, this pneumonia that we weren't doing anything about. Um, and it just seemed, yeah, out of the blue. Oh, look, they were getting better yesterday. Today, they're dying of hospital-acquired pneumonia. Mm. Um, so we took a group of um, patients with hip fracture, um, a couple of sort of lower limb fractures, and we we tracked them through their admission and swabbed them at, at various time points um, to, to see, uh, you know, what bacteria were in their mouths and, and yeah, the link with any subsequent hospital-acquired pneumonia. And, we yeah, we showed a sort of six times increase in pneumonia incidence in those patients um, that had those. It, it wasn't any single bug. It wasn't, you know, just Staph aureus or it wasn't just mm. E. coli. But when you lump them together as, you know, as a group of potential pathogens, then that's when we saw um, that kind of increase. And I think that was – I think it was – you know, not to blow me in trumpet or anything. It was, I think it was an important study because um, we we was, hadn't yeah. seen <laughs> we hadn't seen um, other studies that had linked that sort of t you know the time sequence of having the bugs first and then developing the the pneumonia. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in that because I I'm an ex orthopedic nurse, so before I started infection control, going oh, back to the eighties, I, I was I I come from an era where. If you had a fractured neck of femur, we hang you from the ceiling for six weeks and hoped that it would heal rather than <laughs> actually putting metal in people. And, of course, they all got pneumonia. And, yeah. you know, you just think, oh, is that lack of mobility? They're not going anywhere. And that, I'm sure that has something to do with yeah. it. But the thought that specific organisms were more likely to be in the mouth certainly wouldn't have occurred to me at that yeah. time. 
So uh, William Wade and a few other, um, Floyd Dewhurst did a lovely, they did some of the early oral microbiome work and they looked at yeah, healthy mouths and the, these sorts of organisms really weren't anywhere to be found. They were using the, you know, the next generation sequencing techniques where mm-hmm. rather than looking for a specific bug, you sort of basically PCR everything within that sample. So um, you can sort of see whole communities coming up. So that's been a real kind of game changer. Mm. The, the, the other thing I was going to, to mention, I remember listening to you, uh, Vicky, there's a great session at the Hospital Infection Society conference now that might have been 2018. I can't remember now, but um, there's also some really nice, um, which we can't obviously do on a podcast. But there were some really nice visual representations of people swallowing, and yeah. uh, and just when people aren't swallowing properly, what that looks like uh, in terms of um, yeah. leftover fluid and and fluid going back into the to the respiratory tract, the upper respiratory tract. Yeah. Um, was that work that you were involved with, or did you um, just? You know, is that was just an example of uh, of uh, some of the risks, I guess, with with how you acquire HAP. Yeah, so that, that, those were videos um, that I um, that I found. I that wasn't work I was involved with, but I think I've become increasingly kind of fascinated with the swallow, and you know, very much a kind of a, an amateur um, learner in terms of the swallow. But yeah, the more I learn about it, the more I think we absolutely need to do some more work around this. So. Yeah, so the um, there's there's two sort of main functions of a swallow. One is um, airway protection. So you get the kind of there's three bits. So you get it in the mouth first. That's your kind of oral stage, and you kind of form a bolus. And then there's the pharyngeal stage, which is where the bolus kind of goes into the pharynx. The pharynx is the throat, basically. So the bit between your mouth and your larynx, which is your voice box. And at that point is where all the kind of excitement and action happens because um, you've got two things that need to happen. One is you have to protect the airway. And what happens is the hyoid bone, which is a little bone at the front of your neck here, and there's some muscles there. And that kind of goes upwards and forwards. And as it does that, the epiglottis kind of curls backwards and downwards. And that's the, and it hits this arytenoid cartilage at the back. And it basically seals the airway. So that's one of the functions of the swallow, that it, it, it essentially protects the airway. And aspiration, when we talk about aspiration of saliva or aspirating those bugs from the mouth down into the lungs that we think is driving that pneumonia, that is where you get penetration sort of vis- visualised below the vocal cords. Um, and that's what we're talking about, penetration and aspiration. So penetration is it gets into the larynx and, and aspiration, it goes below the vocal cords. So putting those two things together, um, the aspiration part and then the bugs part that you've, you, we were talking about earlier. Mm. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about broader strategies in a minute, but but what are your thoughts on sort of uh, um, the use of, I guess, antiseptics or, or mouthwashers? Do they have any role in... Um, in, in reducing the risk of happen in the case yeah. of things like aspiration, do you think? So I think I think the jury is still a little bit out on this. So lots of ITU studies and um, studies in sort of cardiac surgery patients, particularly there's a study by Deviso, which found um, a, a definite or apparently a definite um, reduction in um, pneumonia simply by using a, a chlorhexidine um, gel or mouth rinse. Um, the ITU studies have been initially that you know it was a big thing, and there were lots of bundles of um, sort of oral health head up um, and using chlorhexidine in intensive care patients. But then there's a 
systematic review by Clompus um, um, et al, who found a sort of non-significant increase in mortality in those ITU patients who are having the chlorhexidine put around their mouths. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's hard to know because obviously those patients have, you know, they've got no airway, well, they've got a tube down and whatever protection you get from um, the cuff around the tube, but you can still aspirate through that. So yeah, it's hard to know. I think probably we don't really understand the the sort of relative um, effect size of mechanical brushing versus that kind of decontamination effect from something like corsodil or Listerine. And I think that's yet we we need to do that study as well that says, you know, (laughs) what's the, uh, you know, what's the optimum mouth care products? Do we just need to brush? You know, um, does does corsodil help? So the, the study we're about to do, we're going to use we're going to use Corsidil on a toothbrush and brush with that, okay. and and see how that goes. But I, I'm I don't know for sure that that's any better than just using you know a, a sort of low residue toothpaste. Yeah, because the, the, there was a, a study they attempted recently. They published the protocol first, and then they tried the study, and they just couldn't get the numbers in it to actually reach statistical significance because because of the fallout of the people uh, in the mm-hmm. study. And I, I, that's the problem when you're working with a very elderly, frail population. Mm-hmm. I think, isn't it? Trying to get the numbers in it. Yeah. How long are you planning to run this piece of work over? It's going to be an 18 month study. And it's, it's very much like the, the, the one you just um, published, uh, Martin. So it's, um, it's going to be mm. four sites. It's a stepped wedge design. So each site will come online, sort of, you know, um, six months after the next one. Um, and then by the end, all four sites will be kind of going along. Um, so it sort of relies on that kind of before and after power of each of each little site. So you get the data before and after, and then that that kind of gives you the the power. But it's, it's a mm. feasibility study, and um, okay. so the, uh, the Brett, Brett does love a step wedged design. So. <laughs> I do like a, I do like <laughs> yeah. a step wedged design. Man. <laughs> well, you know these these studies are so difficult to do. Yeah. Um, in, in and infection control studies generally are uh, really difficult to do we have uh, generally low quality evidence in, in for our yeah. recommendations around infection prevention control because a lot of the ethical issues in doing these types of studies and so many confounders and so i, I do like a step wedge because some of those um confounders can be can be mitigated yeah. um so so yeah i think you know best of luck i really look forward to hearing some of the outcomes from this one vicky yeah well um yeah and uh we could always find an, an extra wedge or an extra step i'm not sure which one it would be <laughs> an australian wedge slash step yeah. i mean you, you kindly mentioned See the, the paper I've, I've been involved in very minimally i have to say i was more of a motivating factor i think i mean it's published by mark garvey and it's a mm. letter to the journal of infection as brett's mentioned and uh, basically they they listened to me going on about happen why isn't anybody doing anything and Kerry Holden one of the uh, senior infection control nurses there who's now moved on to Gloucester is doing great work there she was looking at what programs were going on in her organization and originally she looked at they had a mouth care matters program but they also had a PJ paralysis a pajama paralysis um, which is get up get people up get them dressed and get them moving and they looked at just in two prevalent studies originally at what a difference it made now okay they did uh, the first prevalent study in the winter and the second in the summer, so seasonality, etc. Uh, and in this particular piece of work that's published by Mark and colleagues, they they actually put a dental practitioner on the units, actually teaching people. So on four wards, they had uh, people getting taught uh, how to risk assess the oral cavity, to actually clean the teeth properly, look at swallowing, etc., etc. Oh. Uh, and they had a, a 
a couple of control wards, and they've got a ninety percent reduction. Now, this isn't an RCT; it's a it's a small yeah. piece of work, but you know, so it's never going to be figuring in a systematic review. Yeah. But we got a huge reduction in in healthcare associated pneumonia, yeah. and this surely gives us an indication of where we could target potential interventions. Yeah, yeah, it's quite like the um, you know. Um, uh, Diane Baker and Barbara Quinn and Karen Giuliano in, in the US have done sort of. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? So um, they they did they had a, a single case of um, I think it was a a young grandmother I think someone in the sixties who came into hospital and and unfortunately for something relatively minor and contracted a hospital acquired pneumonia and very sadly died from it and they decided that they were going to do something and they they literally did a a whole hospital rollout of of a kind of mouth care matters type. Um, intervention mm. and um, and have since and, and saw massive reductions in pneumonia um, and since have rolled it out to sort of a number of you know th- something like thirty or forty hospitals in the US. Um, Why do you think we cannot get these big studies funded, Brett? I mean, you've put in a, a couple of fantastic bids, yeah, and they haven't been funded. Is it is it because it, the interventions yeah. may be perceived to be? Mm. What you should yeah. be doing anyway, I should say. I could almost yeah. say because, because you know, Heather Loveday and Jenny Wilson and I looked at producing some risk assessment tool. You know, can we spot the people who are at risk of healthcare associated pneumonia? And then we'll put in an intervention like cleaning yeah. people's teeth and getting them walking around. And actually, ah, thinking, yeah. actually, that's called basic nursing yeah. care. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, in that case, do you not do that to the other people? Oh, sorry, you're not yeah. on the. You know, you don't score highly on the risk. Therefore, we're not going to clean your teeth and sit in that chair. That's not happening. So, what do you yeah. think, Brett? Uh, uh, look, you're right there, Martin. Um, I think that is part of the problem. Um, so what what is the control? So if you're looking at trying to do an RCT in this space to try and get funding, mm-hmm. uh, that's quite hard to do because um, who's getting the control, who's getting the intervention? And then there's a lot of contamination issues mm-hmm. too. So if you're delivering the, the intervention, are you going to give it to the to Joe Bloggs in room one and not to not to Mrs. Smith in room two? Yeah. So, uh, and it, but you're the same nurse. Yeah. So... Um, so there's really lots of, and, and if you're thinking about who we're going to want to 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 do this sort of intervention on, they're going to be elderly, yeah. at risk individuals who are going to have the highest risk of HAP. So yeah. we can try and see whether it works or not, and and so then you have consent issues yeah. and a whole range of other issues. So it's it's a complicated thing to do. Um, and look, you know, Barbara Quinn and others have done some great work in this space, yeah. but they also demonstrate through their work how hard it is to do these types of studies. There was one study. I don't think it was Barbara Quinn. It just escapes me who who, who did this study, but uh, they went to do a study, but they couldn't get the the oral care intervention. I think that they wanted oral care being done three times a day yeah. for the for the hospitalised patients, but they couldn't get it above one point one yeah. as the average, and so they couldn't actually evaluate their study. Yeah. And so the most simplest thing to try and do. Yeah. So so on top of all those things, it's actually doing the intervention, and getting people to do the intervention is going to be the hard one. The fidelity of the interventions extremely hard. Yeah. So um, I hope we can get some some studies. Vicky's study that she's got going there, the feasibility study, will be a great stepping mm. step forward. We just need to keep pumping out where we can evidence of some of these quasi-experimental studies mm. uh, with the view to really generate the evidence to support a big quality RCT. And I also think the other problem is when we're going to do such a study, we're throwing the whole kitchen sink at it. We're throwing improved oral care. We want people to get up and we want them to be mobile. Mm. We want early dysphagia management and identification. And so one of the reviewer comments that I had back on a grant said, well, you're not going to know which one of those three works. Mm. 
Well, yes, we don't, yeah. but it doesn't really care because we want yes. we want people to to, to not get out. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't matter. So this is the problem. Yeah. Absolutely, I would totally echo that. Yeah, the fidelity is a is a mass, massive problem. There was that there was that study in care homes where they um, in America, I think it was um, might may not pronounce it correctly, but um, Jathani Mehta did um, like a, a sort of internet an intervention trial in care homes. And they measured the fidelity by seeing how much the you know the chlorhexidine bottle had gone down over time. And again, that it's a kind of proxy for fidelity, but it's not actually, you know, you. It's a bit like alcohol-based tambra. Yeah, no, well, I like that. I like that one, but yeah, but people might drink the alcohol-based tambra, but they're not going to drink the chlorhexidine. No, I I mean, I I like that. That's a really simple idea, isn't it? The best studies I've seen um, for, for demonstrating the, the value of oral care really come in residential and aged care facilities mm. and nursing homes. And and they have been where RCTs have been undertaken, but predominantly um, they've been undertaken by dental hygienists mm. or dentists uh, who have that real skill in plaque removal. Mm. And now that's not what you're aiming to achieve in a hospital-based setting. Yeah. It's a very different scenario and that kind of implement uh, intervention is not going to be feasible so um I, I you know part of this is getting people to really think about oral care and the importance of it uh and by i think the the, the real gist of doing these types of studies is if we have the evidence to say yeah doing the things martin that you alluded to that we should be doing um good oral care getting people up and mobile doing the, the early identification and management uh of swallowing difficulties there's good evidence to say if we did these trials there's good evidence then to say it was critical and this becomes part of things like huddles this becomes part of handover management this becomes part of undergraduate curriculum for for training and and that's where it's falling down because we haven't got strong evidence to support these things at the moment i mean it it seems a bit ridiculous as a as a consultant geriatrician to be learning about the swallow now (laughs) 20 years out of medical school (laughs) you know (laughs) Yeah, but it's, it's it's putting it into the context, though, isn't it? You'll learn about it and go, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But actually, you're seeing the direct impact of why that makes a difference, and and I, and and that's all very well training like nurses in a, in a yeah. school of nursing. You get people moving and you clean their mouth, and oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But I've stood there at study days and talked about you know cleaning people's teeth affects pneumonia. Mm. And they they're shocked because it's not taught in that yeah. way. They're taught of it as a hygienic method, yeah. not a, this is important to keep you alive type of thing. And, yes, you know, and these studies where you can only get it done once a day. If you told the staff you're only allowed to clean your teeth once a day at home, they'd yes. be up in arms. So mm-hmm. why aren't we saying actually just do for the patients mm-hmm. what you do for yourself, yeah. which is at least twice a day. Yeah, and that would that would double. <laughs> yeah, and I think the evidence uh, for the implications of hap. We talked about it right at the start, Martin. You talked about um, prevalence. Uh, uh, this is one of the most common infections acquired in hospital. Um, so that's one side of it. But then, what's the impact for for patients and health services? Mm. And that's you know that that is also evidence for that is growing. Mm. You know, uh, Vicky alluded to some of that. People with uh, HAP, nineteen um, percent uh, of people who who get HAP in, in one study. Uh, get transferred to an ICU. Mm. Yeah. You know, mm. people who have HAP are eight times more likely yeah. to die in hospital yeah. for similar patients without HAP. Yeah. This has a really big impact for individuals. And these are just mm. not numbers, these are patients. Well, they're going to have antibiotics. Yeah. So that's not great for antimicrobial resistance. And C. diff. C. diff, mm. absolutely. Yeah. You know, so the knock on effect yeah. of all of this, so their increased length of stay, yep. et cetera, et cetera, 
you know, it's the impact could be huge. Maybe 10 days extra. Yeah, the, I think the impact is huge. Yeah. And um, and uh, yeah, one of the so well, the RCP president we, we was talking and, and was saying that he'd been asked by uh, a patient's family who'd, who'd acquired hospital acquired pneumonia and had, I think had read about the sort of link with oral hygiene and said, well, you know, can I can you produce evidence that you have cleaned my relative's teeth? And if not, then you know, are you are you sort of liable for this this person's illness and the subsequent death? I mean. That hasn't been a thing that's kind of come up before, but mm. you know, as you start as as we start to gather more evidence, then that does become a bit of a, an issue, doesn't it? That you you know you need to have proved that you've at least looked in, yeah. <laughs> which is not something we routinely do. Yeah. You know, without um, without that mm. sort of protocol and pathway and care plans in place, it, yeah. Now I know Martin, we're probably going to cover UTIs in a future podcast, but <laughs> you know there are many similarities I say between U- and UTIs and HAP. Yeah. They are two of the three most common healthcare associated infections. Yeah. Um, they are going to be, and they're increasingly becoming affected by antimicrobial resistance in terms of these things becoming more difficult to treat. But yeah. also, if we prevent these really, really common yeah. infections, we will use less antimicrobials yeah. as well in hospitals. So. Um, you know, and this is before you even start talking about numbers and mortality and length of stay yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I can, I can see you. we're not going to get even a chance to get on and talk about mobility today. So <laughs> I think we'll have people watching out for podcast two in this <laughs> theme, and then maybe we come to come up with a bundle and a third one or something like that because it's. Uh, but the mouth care is a yeah. big thing, and and I, I was so struck by your original paper, Vicky, with the orthopedic oral flora because that's something I hadn't really thought of before. So that 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 got me really thinking about oral hygiene. Oh, thank you, fantastic. I think Martin, um, before we sort of wrap up, I think it is it is worth touching that we we have only touched on a few prevention strategies and mobility, and early mobility is a key one of those. And there's been some great work in the stroke, um, in the stroke space patients post-stroke that, that demonstrate that. Um, so there's a couple of good reviews we might put on our, our website that if people are interested in reviews that have looked at strategies to prevent HAP, um, they can go there for a bit more detail. I think there's lots of things we haven't covered. We haven't covered actually how you do surveillance of HAP in your, in oh. your healthcare yeah. facility. It's a big issue. Um, and, and Every <laughs> five years, <laughs> yeah. you mean. Yeah. We need some rolling surveillance, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We need rolling yeah. surveillance. We need actionable yeah. actionable surveillance. Never looked at. That, that has to be done feasibly because, um, you know, we can't expect. It's a burdensome thing. It's a bit like UTIs. It's a burdensome thing to be doing surveillance on. So we have to come better ways of undertaking surveillance for HAP as well. So maybe that's a podcast yeah. two and three on HAP. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe we'll talk to somebody about can you automate the surveillance for it? You know, there are there things you could pick out of your routinely collected data that might help you? And at least in, if you could look at it in a consistent way, you'd be able to see the trend locally. It doesn't have to be you know, for a publication, but it might help you locally. You'd have to have a decent working diagnosis, though, Martin, for that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and that's something yes, we haven't touched on either. But, I mean, that's... <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, that's another. Oh, that's a <laughs> great point, Vicky. The definition of what is a pneumonia. <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Yes. And on that bombshell. That'll <laughs> be podcast three. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right, Martin. On that bombshell, we might wrap it up. So, Vicky, um, thank you so much for your yeah, time. Thank you. Uh, uh, this evening, this morning, wherever you might 
people are listening across the world. Vicky's in the UK at the moment. I'm in Australia. <laughs> and Martin's in the UK. So all times of the day. Um, thank you for your time. And thank you for your work in this area. Um, and um, we really look forward to to seeing future work um, from yourself You're very as welcome. Well. It's, a, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you both today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed it as ever. And thanks to uh, all our listeners. It's uh, goodbye from us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.